0: Hello, welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at-scale application development, deployment, and management. LaunchDarkly is
1: a feature management platform that empowers all teams to safely deliver and control software through feature flags. By separating code deployments from feature releases, LaunchDarkly enables you to deploy faster, reduce risk, and iterate continuously.
2: Hello, and welcome to another new edition of the New Stack Makers podcast. This is Job Jackson. I am your host for today's show. And today we are talking with Dan O'Brien, a software engineer at LaunchDarkly. The topic for today is staying in context with the right tools. Joining me is uh, my co-host, Alex Williams, publisher and founder of the New Stack. Hello, Alex. Hey, Job. And Dan, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on this on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Let me provide some context of what we're talking about today. Today's developer seems to be working with more tools than ever. Building a Node.js-based JavaScript application could require over a dozen tools at times to get code out into production. It's easy to get sucked down in the rabbit hole and focus on one thing. Likewise, debugging an application once in production can also be a challenge. You want as much context at your fingertips, but you still want to maintain a reasonable signal to noise ratio. This is why we wanted to talk with Dan O'Brien. He has a personal interest in how to keep from being distracted and staying in the flow when working on a new feature or any piece of code. And in this conversation, we hope to ask Dan about the complexities of what he sees in today's developer environment and some tips about how to stay in the zone. And while we're at it, we'd love to get a little bit of uh, information on LaunchDarkly itself and how this company and its tools can expedite application development. Well, let's just jump in. When you first got started in the field of software development, what was it like and how has it changed since then?
1: My first taste of development was when I was actually working as a technical support rep for a CD and DVD replication and duplication company. I offered to make some changes to their website, and this was done using Dreamweaver and Subversion. So... Things have changed a little bit since then.
0: Back to the good old days.
1: <laughs> exactly. After that, my next role was as part of a cloud hosting team where the operations team was manually deploying VMs for us to then do coding with. After that, I transitioned into being a DevOps engineer and have helped teams migrate their applications into containerized environments, set up and maintain their CI CD
2: pipelines. So it was basically still a one-person... You're doing a lot of one-person jobs. You had tools, but it was still kind of doable for the most part for these sorts of requirements.
1: Exactly. It was less requirements for the whole pipeline compared to the changes we've seen over the last, say, five to ten years.
2: Oh, that's crazy. I mean, yeah, just with the advent of CI/CD and now DevOps... What are these new tools doing? I mean, is this a benefit for to add in all this additional layer of complexity?
1: I think overall, it's worth it in most cases. I mean, I feel like the complexity comes from a couple different avenues. One is users are demanding more out of their applications now than they used to. And another is from the business requirements. So when your code has dependencies, you then have to make sure those dependencies are secure. So you need tooling to make sure that Everything you're using is secure. Overall, this becomes an entire pipeline of different tools that you have to manage as a team.
0: You know, it's interesting. I had several conversations as of late about the developer experience. And for so long, it had focused on simplicity. And that seemed to be like the nirvana of the developer experience. But now it seems more it's about, especially these complex stacks, is you need to be able to have the right tools to be able to do different things. And you don't have those. That just ruins the experience. Do you find that? Absolutely.
1: I feel like the end goal is still simplicity, though. Each of those tools should be integrating with your current stack and the current tooling you're using. So that that becomes its whole ecosystem itself. And moving from one tool to the other is as seamless as possible. That, to me, is the aim for everything.
2: Can that be done through the IDE itself, the integrated development environment? Or uh, or, uh, how do you approach this sort of streamlining?
1: For my goal, when I'm programming something, I do like to have as much context as possible in the editor so that you're not jumping from one tool to another just to say, you know, what is actually happening in my code. So as much as possible, I do like integrations that really work out of the box with the current IDEs I'm using today.
2: What IDEs are you using?
1: I primarily focus on VS Code myself. That's my go-to editor. And I'll throw in IntelliJ or, for example, like Goland in some cases.
2: But you won't go for a full-fledged, not like Visual Studio. You take v Code over Visual Studio, or is that more of a company-wide decision?
1: I find VS Code has easier integrations for most of the languages I'm working with, things like TypeScript, than Visual Studio. Maybe it's just my lack of, I haven't used Visual Studio a
2: ton myself. But that's good to know that when you're choosing a, a, you know, a developer environment, that you should look not just beyond your immediate needs, but how well in general that it integrates with a wide range of other tools and languages and whatnot.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the greatest things we've seen recently is the creation of the language server protocol that helps so that your IDE can integrate with all these languages to pull in even more context about the language. And you can also have things like liners that even integrate there. So the less you have to deal with day-to-day that can be done in an automated fashion
2: that's consistent to me is a great win. Terrific. Perfect. Now, yeah, let's also talk production. I'm still old school in the fact that if there's something wrong on a website, I'll just SSH in and go and fix the problem. But evidently, this is a big no-no now. Now you, you shouldn't be using SSH at all because it's a security hole, understandably. But how are today's production environments different than those of uh, 15, 20 years ago?
1: I'm also with you. I previously, you know, you had SSH into the boxes or if you had to multicast your input to a group of boxes at a time. But as you're pointing out in today's day and age with security being such a concern, the less access someone has to where that code is running, the better. And I think with the number of observability tools that have been on the market and how much information they can give you at your fingertips, they can help make this kind of dream much more of a reality. That comes with the trade-off upfront as we're talking about the developer experience. And you know working with everything is now The developers have to think about that before the code ever goes into production, you have to make sure it's instrumented correctly. Because if it's not, when something goes wrong, no matter how good the observability tool is, it's not going to be able to help you if it's not observing the right things.
0: What observability tools do you use? As I recall, it's honeycomb, right? Yes. Do you use any others?
1: We also use Datadog for infrastructure monitoring.
0: But that's for monitoring, right?
1: Right, more than the observability. Honeycomb is our primary go-to
0: for observability. Why do you need both? Some would argue that cloud-native technologies don't really require monitoring anymore.
1: I think maybe one day we'll get there. I haven't seen that entirely yet, where everything is fully cloud-native without any infrastructure backing it. That could just be from my experience, though.
0: It's a competitive landscape, right? And so you have older companies coming into the fore and saying, we're an observability platform. And then the newer ones, in particular, Honeycomb, saying, None of the others are observability. How do you delineate and distinguish between the two in terms of how you think about observability and what what you're doing
1: that's a great question i'm not sure I have a full answer for where I would see like a exact separation between it. I think it depends on the use case. Honeycomb is really good at providing stats on things rolled up you know how is this trending and even individual requests in some cases where datadog is good at monitoring things like infrastructure. And then from our perspective as you know, LaunchDarkly itself, we're happy to integrate with all these different tools and observability so that you can surface changes in LaunchDarkly in these observability tools.
2: Let's talk about workflow. What are some of the behaviors and habits that you've built up over the years to help you stay in focus? That's a great question.
1: And I'd love for the audience to send me some of their suggestions too. The reason I'm so interested in things like the field of developer experience is because I actually get scrolled quite easily. I'm constantly distracted by the shiny new things. Um, I do find for coding, though, disabling desktop notifications, entering Zen mode in VS Code, along with using GitLens, which for me is an absolute must in VS Code, it really helps with maintaining that focus for longer periods of time. And another example, it's not quite a habit, but I find useful, is where possible, change up synchronous activities like their daily standup, if everyone has to jump on a Zoom call at the same time, that can break up your flow where it can be more asynchronous via tools like GeekBot for Slack, where now you can determine when this needs to happen.
2: Could you talk a bit more about GitLens? How is this better than just kind of scripting it yourself?
1: GitLens is a plugin for VS Code that pulls Git information into the editor itself. For example, if I'm working in a section of code, I can see right there, you know, has this code been touched recently? Who was the last editor? You can also pull in information like commit information right at your fingertips. And that to me is such a great thing to have all that context there. That the longer I can keep that context that I need, the less I jump back and forth between different tools and then get distracted.
0: So tell me more about that process. So When has this become really important for you in your workflow to be able to know, like for instance, the the latest version or who was the editor?
1: I find a lot of times, for example, I work on our own VS Code plugin for LaunchDarkly. And when I'm making changes there, I'm trying to see, is this a recent change? Have we changed this in the last few commits that the code I'm working on is brand new? Or is this code really a year old or six months old that hasn't been touched so that when I'm making changes around it, it gives me more information to just be able to say, am I touching a piece that has probably touched other parts recently or not?
0: Now then change your approach. For instance, you'll say, oh gosh, this code needs updating or, oh no, this code still looks good after six months.
1: Exactly. Or that makes sense why this was coded in this way. It was a year ago before we changed you know, how we're styling this a little bit and maybe I need to run a linter and make sure everything gets updated to our latest styles.
2: How did you end up at Launch Startly? Or how did you first find the company? How did they find you? And what do you do there?
1: I actually worked with my previous manager, Lev, at a company called Linode that was based out of South Jersey at that point. So I've known him for years and then joined Launch Startly as a solutions engineer and just recently made a jump over to our developer experience team.
2: What is it that you liked about the company or the technology?
1: Exactly both. So as an overall company, it's The best I've worked at, everything about it has been inclusive and a great team. And then for the technology, what made me so excited for this is I knew my manager from Luna when I worked there, but I also worked at IBM for a part. And when I was at IBM, we were looking to write our own feature flagging solution. So you quickly learn how you can start it simply, but there's edge cases to everything. So seeing LaunchDarkly as a platform, to me, was the technology behind it has been great. The 200 millisecond updates and... Not even just that, but all the technical debt management around that to me is huge. Anyone can add a feature flag into the system, but to know what is really the state of that feature flag, that's a big thing. You know, is this still in use? Should this code be cleaned up? All of the management around it.
0: It's interesting because I talked to uh, Isabel Miller and we talked a lot about feature flags and you know why they're useful and She's saying, well, you know, you can just turn a service off if you're having a major latency issue, for instance. Or if there's a need to turn a service off because there's a big problem and someone's taking off for a few days, you can just take care of it later. But then there's also the issues of actually the deployment of the feature flag itself. And what approach do you take? Do you place one flag or multiple flags? This has to all play into the developer experience. I'm curious on how you're thinking through these types of issues.
1: This is one of the main reasons I have that interest in developer experience and like to work on our plugins. So we have one not only for VS Code, but we also have a beta one for IntelliJ. And what I like so much about that is surfacing the contextual information of the feature flag in the editor itself. And also without leaving the editor, you can do things like turn the feature flag on or off. I think it's huge too, when you're working in that galley, to really have that information around it. So in VS Code, for instance, if you hover over a feature flag, we'll pull up the information on it what is the name of the flag some metadata because you can add things like optional descriptions to the flag and also the state of it all of this to me is really how you stay in the flow as much as possible and manage that complexity there is a trade off of feature flagging and as you're saying you know when you can have multiple feature flags and still having that functionality
2: Are there any other aspects you think might be worth talking about when you think about developer workflow? Are there additional considerations like health or diet or other things like that? Any other tips that you could offer us?
1: I think overall, those are definitely important to do. I mean, me, myself, I'm actually a huge cold brew fan, so I should probably cut out the amount of caffeine I have constantly. (laughs) But sleep and what you eat is always important and being able to maintain that focus for a longer period of time.
0: What is it about cold brew these days? I mean, everyone loves cold brew.
1: I love it. You make it the night before and it's just so delicious.
0: My dad was making cold brew back in like 1975. And I was like, dad, what are you doing with this? He's like, well, it's great because you put it in the fridge overnight, you know, and like just can have a fresh cup of coffee. I'm like, all right. Now my son's way into it. I think it skipped a generation. You're not a coffee or a cold brew person, just hot coffee? You know what I'm into lately? I'm into like coffee with oat milk. I think that speaks to the times. I actually did have a cold brew with oat milk and I was like, man, I can't have any more of these things. Those things are really good. There's actually this convenience store close by to us. It's like one of these new age convenience stores that you find in Portland. It's called the Green Zebra. And the Green Zebra has slushies. Not the kind of slush you get at 7-Eleven, but like slushy with like cold brew coffee and maple syrup and oat milk.
1: I'm not sure how that sounds. It kind of sounds delicious. And at the same time, I'm like, I'm not sure I want to try it.
0: <laughs> they also had a frozen kombucha. So, you know, <laughs> Portland, you know, you got it all. There's some
2: paths you don't want to go down, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't really talked about the human aspect of coding. And I'm not sure where people are these days in terms of DevOps. I doubt to you. How closely do you have to work, or do the developers you know have to work with their peers? Is it still team programming or is it just everybody out for themselves? And what are some good rules of thumb if you are working with uh, your colleagues on an intimate basis?
1: I think the definite trend, and hopefully most teams are going with squad-based approaches to things, or at least as a team sport, one-offs are always risky because if the person's out that day, then what do you do? I mean, at least in the case of feature flags, you can just turn it off for them, but it's still not the best way to be where really when you're looking at code, you want team knowledge. Otherwise, it just stays as... Tribal knowledge that if that person leaves, you've now lost all this information that someone else has to go back and relearn, which is huge. And my other personal just thoughts on this are that the pull request is the best place to do a lot of collaboration on this. Once you've already done the design to make sure things are documented in the future so that you can have a review of the code as a team and you can write out exactly what's happening. And then you see the changes to it over time, but you also have that document in the future that getting back to GitLens, someone can see you know, what the discommit effect and go view the information.
0: Man, GitLens is hot. <laughs> Question for you. So talking about developers and what they're getting accustomed to, how long have you been a developer now?
1: I just transitioned to a full developer actually recently. Before this, I was a solutions engineer. And even before that, I was actually a DevOps engineer.
0: So tell me then... How have feature flags kind of helped you as a developer? And Isabel talked about it you know, as being very helpful because in some ways it allows for a certain level of security because with these feature flags, you could kind of like try something. Maybe it's not what you really want to do, You can, but you can turn it off really quickly. How have feature flags kind of played a role in your evolution as a developer?
1: Feature flags are one of those versatile tools that, have a lot of different aspects to them. One is even just like a faster release cycle. You can release something iteratively and just have it enabled for a small set of users. So you're really separating that deployment from release. You have it out in production, but you only have it on for a handful of users to get that feedback. So that to me is huge to cut down, are you actually coding towards the right thing? And even closer in my previous role as a DevOps engineer was really around operational use cases. I wish we had even more feature flags as a DevOps engineer. For the ability to turn things off. So when there's an issue happening, having that runtime control over the application and not having it be a firefighting exercise is huge. You know, you don't have to pull in the whole team and start a conference call to sort out this issue. You turn the feature off and then you decide, you know, when do we want to prioritize actually fixing this?
0: But can't those feature flags have relationships with each other? I mean, you might have a feature flag on multiple different services and there may be dependencies on each other. How have you had to like manage the complexities of the feature flag deployments?
1: Each feature flag can be used across multiple microservices. Like you could use the same feature flag, but I think what you might be talking about is even at the code layer, right? Like you could have dependencies mm-hmm. inside of it. Absolutely. From LaunchDarkly, we actually have a tool called Code References that I think is just amazing that helps you surface where all those feature flags are used at in your code. But you are right. It is one of those tough problems to solve because you still have to take into account if you're calling one feature flag and nested below that is another feature flag, that's something that the team has to keep track of. And there's coding practices around that that you don't want to nest multiple feature flags down. In large itself, you actually have the ability to do things like prerequisites for that parent-child relationship.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And when I talked to Isabel, she talked about one, they had a very complex problem. and they Decided to just reduce everything to one flag. And then what they did was they set up a binary tree. So, like, yes, you know, yes, you go this direction. No, you go the other direction and you have some kind of a outcome. So, is this kind of a picture of the early stages of feature flags and how they're being used and managed in more complex environments? Feature flags are nothing new, but now that their applications in complex environments are kind of creating these kind of new kind of use cases, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. I do think we're seeing more and more use cases for feature flags where teams really want that runtime control over the application versus having to do deployments to change it or how do you surface what this flag is doing? So yeah, I definitely think we're still in the early stages of what we see as possible. We have some really interesting use cases that customers have used flags
0: for. Like what?
1: One, for instance, is Truecar has done routing on the edge with Launch like the feature flags.
0: Routing on the edge with feature flags. And the feature flags do what in that kind of instance?
1: They were determining where
0: to route the traffic to, I believe. And so by deploying the feature flags, if the routing wasn't right, for instance, they could turn it off.
1: Exactly. They had that control at the edge for where they're sending their traffic.
2: That seems like feature flags would be uh, really good for experimental stuff, too, just in general. Just say, oh, I got this app. And you think you've mapped out all the different ways it could interact with all other parts of the application, but you never know. And so a feature flag seems like you could easily try something and pull it back if it doesn't work.
1: I think experimentation is huge for feature flagging. And it enables that ability, like you're saying, to really try more. You know, you can add a variation to a feature flag and then build metrics around that to see our users interacting with this rather than just blindly jumping in and not being sure, is this what people are actually going to work with?
2: And is it the same as A-B test? Can I do feature flag as a form of A-B testing? Or is it kind of a all or nothing thing? Try it, it doesn't work, pull it back.
1: For LaunchDarkly, experimentation is actually built on top of our feature flagging. So you can experiment with a feature flag. So you can route your traffic to each one of these variations and then see which users are interacting with that more.
0: How do you think of then the modern stack? Because, I mean, when I talked to Isabel again, she talked about how LaunchDarkly is using feature flags with Datadog, with Honeycomb. So the observability component seems to be important. What are some of the other kind of, I hate to use the term new stack, but kind of that modern stack approach you're starting to see kind of be very compatible with the feature flag deployments?
1: So when you're saying new stacks, do you have any certain stacks in mind?
0: Observability is a relatively new concept due to the complexities and helps you understand those unknown unknowns, right? So I can see the natural fit with Launch Darkly. What are some of the other natural fits that you see with Launch Darkly?
1: Well, we have a full streaming architecture. We've also, as you're kind of saying, new stack, but it's not quite new. It's like integrations with Salesforce, for instance, and we have a SDK and beta for Apex itself, even. So for these different platforms, it's really feature flags wherever the teams need it.
0: So it's more across the organization is kind of the avenue that you're starting to see emerge. I think that's
1: been a huge trend for teams where before it was kind of more of the bizarre model, it feels like at larger companies, you know, each independent business unit or team was doing their own thing. I've recently talked to a number of companies that have all seemed to have a same trend. Of consolidation, they really want to consolidate. What tools the teams are using? What stacks they're deploying on? You know, more of that paved road concept versus unpaved road. If you're on the paved road, the centralized SREs and teams can help you, and they can provide all this tooling and things around that out of the box for you.
2: Now, amongst LaunchDarkly's user base, are there particular categories of different industrial sectors that have really gravitated towards it? Is this something big? In, oh, entertainment or telecom or Financial software. Who are some of the earlier adopters with Launch
1: It's been surprising to me. It's across the board. You know, as I say, every company is really a software company now, and as a software company, you really need that feature management. The more you can operationalize that feature management, the faster you can get new features out to your users.
0: Does that make low code? You mentioned Apex, and low code is a term I'm not a big fan of, but it speaks to kind of like where everyone in the organization actually can code, right? There seems to be that kind of intersection there, isn't there? I don't know about
1: that exactly. I mean, we can work in low code environments in some cases if there's an integration, I would think. But feature flags by themselves are, to me personally, at least more of the programming aspect. Like you still have that conditional in your code saying, you know, what do you want to happen? Which code path do you want to go down? So feature flags are still relevant in low code where you have, you know, which path you want this to take are really not anything specific to that.
0: Yeah, I I can see much different kind of a story for the use for feature flags that's much more about kind of like serving the people who are building out those at scale development environments and deployment approaches and uh, management. Yeah, that makes sense.
2: One of the interesting parts about this conversation is that we have learned how launch Darkly can help developers stay in the flow, so to speak, not do that out-of-context jumping around. Are there any other aspects you think might be worth mentioning, Dan, about this approach or about developer workflow in general? Just along with
1: our approach, we do have things like the idiomatic SDKs. So if you're in Python, you're expecting, for example, like snake case functions. That's what we look to do. We are developer first. And everything in our platform is also available via REST API. So we keep developers front and center and we build it and use it ourselves. So that's how we want it to be.
2: I've never heard this concept before idiomatic. If I'm a Python developer, then I can write the feature flags in a Python like syntax. Whereas when I'm C, C, it's more geared towards that. Is that what you mean?
1: Like for the function calls, when you call a variation call, launch likely to get a return value for a feature flag. You're expecting to, in Python, use snake case. For example, in Java, you're going to be using camel case. And for each one of our SDKs, we're going to map the functions that you're expecting to use to your normal syntax. It's just those little things like that that, you know, the less you need to think about and, and stay in that context for longer, the better. So we try to take into all those little pieces into account to make it a seamless experience for you.
2: Boy, that is nice. So you don't get that fatigue of jumping from one environment to another. Oh, is this camel case? Is this something else? Nice, nice. Dan, thank you uh, so much for joining us. This has been an interesting talk and we've learned a lot about feature flags and what's happening in developer community. We thank you for that.
1: Thank you for having me. LaunchDarkly is a feature management platform that empowers all teams to safely deliver and control software through feature flags. By separating code deployments from feature releases, LaunchDarkly enables you to deploy faster, reduce risk, and iterate continuously.
0: Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Simplecast to listen to more episodes of The New Stack Makers. Then create and share your favorite audiogram using our Simplecast player. For more great stories, go to thenewstack.io. What makes for a great tech podcast? The New Stack is conducting our first podcast, Listener Survey, and we want to hear from you. Your feedback will help us bring you the best makers show we can. Please take five minutes to fill out the survey and enter to win a $250 Amazon gift card. Go to thenewstack.io slash survey and thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts.